Hi there, you're listening to the Guitar Speak podcast, produced here in Sydney, Australia. My name is Matt Wakeling. Thank you so much for joining me. Now today, we have the much-awaited second part of our conversation with Brett Garsard, amazing rock fusion player, also from Australia. Now in this part of the interview, we talk about his trip to America, originally to work with the band Nelson. You might remember we're pretty huge for a little while in the early 90s before uh, before grunge came along. Um, but that, that also set Brett's career in a different trajectory. Whilst in the States, he made a lot of connections on the East Coast with all the great blues and fusion players, found himself at the Musicians Institute. And Brett talks about some of the great friendships and, and musical partnerships that he formed whilst he was there. We're talking about people like TJ Helmrich, Keith Wyatt, um, Virgil Donati, Frank Gambali, Derek Sherinian, a whole bunch of amazing people. Brett also talks about working with people like Phil Buckle and Stuart Fraser on his return to Australia. So, yeah, really interesting second part coming up. But first, we've got a little bit of news from us here at the Guitar Speak podcast. Now, for April, we're, uh, we've got a special segment called Ask Peter Northcote. Now, Peter, as you might know, was um, our guest in Episode 7. He's probably one of the most recorded guitar players in Australia, playing on countless sessions and, and gigs. So Peter has a wealth of knowledge and uh, lots of good stories too. So uh, if you've got a question for him, it could be just about guitar playing, it could be about something specific about Peter's career. Either way, that's fine. Email it to us at guitarspeakpodcast at gmail.com. And during April, Peter will answer those questions. Now that's in addition to our regular weekly interviews. We've got some amazing guests coming up. All right, our other piece of news is that we have launched a Patreon page now what that means is that you can financially support the podcast if you would like to. Now I need to stress this podcast is free and it always will be. You do not have to pay to subscribe to us in any shape or form. But if you would like to support us financially, that's great. That helps us cover our running costs and move ahead. So if you go to patreon.com forward slash guitar speak podcast, there's a bunch of options there where you could support us for $1 a month. Uh, or, or some other areas. Now, there are some rewards for different areas of support, things like bonus monthly content, uh, our newsletter, which will uh, give advance notice of who we have booked for interviews. So you might want to get in touch with us with a question or something that we'd, we'd consider before a certain interview, things like that. There's a producer level where we will read your name at the end of the show and name you as uh, one of the co-producers of the program. So a few, a few different options. All right, so that's the idea with Patreon. Okay, the music has just stopped, so that means it's time to get back to our interview with Brett Garsard. I started this section asking him about his move to America. Well, I was always fascinated with America. Uh, my brother my brother had a picture on the wall of uh, Easy Rider, you know, Dennis Hopper and Peter Fonda riding their choppers across... Uh, the Golden Gate Bridge. <laughs> yeah, cool. And I just used to stare at it. As a, this is before I even played guitar, and and I just look at it and the stars and stripes on the, that tank of that motorbike, and I just went, man, these guys look cool. I think America's cool, and uh, and all the all these great musicians seem to be living in America, and um, and so I sort of had this fascination with it as a place, and um, I guess it was a it was a time when John was going to take quite a bit of time off because he'd been working, we'd been touring really hard. 
and just the opportunity came up to go over and audition for uh, uh, the Nelson guys. Yeah. And I was at a bit of a loss. I'd broken up with a long-term relationship with a girlfriend and I was sort of bummed about that. And I tried to sort of settle myself in Melbourne to get some work and that wasn't working out. And, and uh, I thought, yeah, what the hell? You know, I was in a bit of a bad place and I thought, what the hell? Chuck me on the plane. Let's see what happens. And um, I went over there and we, we all really hit it off and they liked what I did. And then, of course, I had to come home and make a really painful decision. That was, and, and look, you know, John, oh, this is how stupid and naive I am and was and always will be, I guess. But I was that silly. I was sitting in the studio with John and I actually asked him if I should do it. Asked, asked John if I should leave his band and uh -huh. go to America. And, you know, to, to John's eternal credit, he gave me the closest thing to fatherly advice I've ever had. And uh, not to insinuate John's old enough to be my father, but sure. having never really had one, you know, it was, I had no one else to ask. Yeah, wow. And, he, and he, with, with all honesty, just total honesty, he said, mate, he said, he said, look, he said, all you can do is either do it or not do it and look back on it years from now and go, well, it was the right decision or the wrong decision. And he said it with no malice, no nothing, just pure advice. And I knew it was coming from someone who'd had to make the same decisions. I know he's had to do a lot of hard things in his own career. Sure, yeah. And, and I, you know, I, in, in all honesty, I look back on it now and I think, I don't know, if I'd had the the, ch the decision to, to make again, I would not have done it. I would have stayed with John. And mm -hmm. uh, and uh, but at the same time, I look back on it and I go, well, I don't know. I wouldn't be the person I am now, and all the rest of it. And it was a great experience. You know, I've got friends over there that will be friends until the day I die. You know what I mean? It's like a big chunk of my life was there. I was in America for thirteen years. So yeah, wow. So uh, so yeah. It was a, but it was. I guess. I guess the thing was, it was such an incredible opportunity to be handed to me, as this just nobody Australian. That I thought, what if I don't take it? You know, sure, like, would sure. I be, would I be crazy not to do it? I don't know. So I took it, mm -hmm. rolled the dice, and went for it. Yeah, one of the one of the friendships you struck up um, was with T.J. Helmrich, who who you've already mentioned. Tell me about working with him. Well, yeah, T.J. was actually working we recorded the nelson album at cherokee studios in los angeles beautiful old studio with enormous amount of history to it and tj was working there as just pretty he eventually became a technician there fixing tape machines and things but when he was working there when i was there he was just literally just cleaning ashtrays and doing just sort of general work around the place yeah, wow. and um there's another bit of a story here. They had a tune on there called Everywhere I Go, and they wanted to give me a pretty big outro solo. And I thought, great, all right. So they rolled tape, and I just blew a take. And uh, and I remember being really, really happy with the take because up until this point, you know, there were certain solos where I had to stick either exactly to what had been done on the demos, so there was no real opportunity to express myself, mm -hmm. or there were small moments where I could put my own identity in there, but not not in a big way. And in this outro solo, I felt like I really got a major part of my personality on that tape, you know. And uh, Mark Tanner, the producer, I went in the next day and Mark was a bit pissed off because I was coming back from America to do another tour with John. And they felt he felt like they'd had to juggle their recording schedule around to suit me, and I think he was a bit sort of bitter and twisted about it. Mm -hmm. And... Uh, so I went in the next day and uh, he started playing. He just pressed play and 
started playing the solo and uh, I'm listening to it going, yeah, sounds good. Yeah, I'm enjoying it. Yeah, it sounds good. Yeah, it's me. All right. Yeah. And then, and then by the stage, it got to sort of halfway through and it had gone on a bit. You know, that would have faded out by then. And it was sort of getting a bit naff by this stage. And I thought, ah, yeah, it's okay, but the ideas aren't as good. And he stopped it at that point and said, everything you have heard up to this point is being cut out of this solo. How do you like them apples? Wow. And yeah, exactly. You know, what? now what I should have done was looked at him and said, Mark, if you cut that out, I'm going to grab my return ticket and fly home and you can erase everything I've done up to this point. How do you like them apples? You know, but of course, you know, being the insecure young fellow in a strange land, I said, okay, and that was it. So, but the funny thing is TJ Helmrich was in there cleaning up the night before when they were doing rough mixes of the, of the album to just take home and listen to for their own edification. Mm-hmm. And he heard this solo and he's, he, he said, he said, told me, he said, I thought you were doing the two hand tapping thing. He said, I thought, my God, this guy's doing what I'm doing. And um, unbeknownst to Tanner and the uh, engineer, after they'd left, TJ chucked the 24 tracks up and did his own mix of it <laughs> and, and took it all home. And I've actually got a copy of it now, thanks oh, to him, unedited. Great. And, um, and uh, yeah, and he just was really keen to meet me and, uh, and have a chat. And we just hit it off and became great friends. And, of course, as soon as he played for me, I just went, look at this. Some, he's done it. He's figured it out. Someone's actually figured this two-hand thing out as a style and not just an occasional trick you use. So... Yeah, I was just astonished, and uh, we're, we're, to this day, we're just old mates. That's great. He's got that really interesting eight-finger style, hasn't he? He kind of, when he solos, he, he lifts the guitar up almost vertically, and and uh, all four fingers on both hands. Kind of plays it like a like a guy would play a Chapman stick, you know? Yeah, you've seen yeah, right. uh, Yeah, the more vertical, the better it's for him. So almost playing it like he'd be playing an upright bass or a cello or something, and uh, and and like I said, he. I mean, TJ started off as a speed picker. You know, he wanted to be Aldo Miola and okay, yeah, all that. Michael Schenker and Ingvay and all the rest of it. And I think he just realised what a, you know, there was no identity in it. Like everybody was doing it, and all you could do was be faster than the next guy. So mm-hmm. I think he wanted to establish his own sound, and he started experimenting with this two-hand thing, and he just decided to commit to it as a style. And that's what blew me away. It was I thought, man, he this is his style of playing. You give him a guitar, that's how he plays it. And <clears throat> of course, he could play it many other ways, but his identity was in this this style. And he was so damn good at it. He's literally, literally twenty years ahead of his time. I think guys are only just now starting to catch up to where he was in 1989. Mm-hmm. So, so yeah, it was it was phenomenal. Yeah. Wow. And he's um. He's a really highly respected engineer as well these days, doing some really cool well, stuff. Well, I mean, you know, you're dealing with one of the most talented people on the planet. I mean, this, mm-hmm. you should hear the guy sing, you know, amazing singer and an, an incredible recording engineer, all self-taught Yeah. And, wow. uh, and, and a hell of a songwriter. I mean, you know, like he's, he's the whole ball of wax, the old TJ. He's an amazing guy. So, uh, so yeah, what a, what, a, what a thrill to have him... As part of my life, you know, That's it's great. had a major impact on me as a musician. That's so. cool. You guys ended up recording a couple of albums together, I believe. Yeah, it was uh, Mark Varney, Mike's brother. Oh, okay. And, yeah. uh, Mike and Mark. I mean, could, could their parents have made it any more confusing? <laughs> than that? 
Bob and Jim, you know, try that maybe. But anyway, um, yeah, so Mike had shrapnel records and yeah. Mark wanted to go fusion direction. So he started Legato Records. Okay. Yeah. And his first signing was Frank Gambali. And um, and uh, then he contacted me because he wanted me to do a solo album for him. I think this was before it even gone to America. This might okay. have even been on the strength of the guitar player article. Oh, okay. And we just started crunching numbers and we just couldn't do it. You know, there was there was no way I could get it done cheap enough for him. Right. And um, I think he was used to fusion bands going in and knocking it out in a couple of hours and then you mix it, master it, and off it's, it's done in for five grand. And, uh, okay. I didn't want to work that way. And um, But he asked me to play on an album called Centrifugal, Centrifugal Funk with Sean Lane and Frank Gambale, and, uh, which was a hell of a thrill. That's where I got to meet Frank and... and uh, and and eventually got to meet Sean, which was just beautiful. But yeah, uh, wow. but um, then after talking to TJ, well, I sent TJ's uh, demo cassette to Mark, and I said, well, you should hear this guy too. You know, he's my friend now, and um, <clears throat> of course he wanted TJ to do an album as well, and his budgets were around five thousand bucks. And we're both sitting there saying, we, we, there's no way we can do an album for five thousand bucks. How do you do an album for five thousand bucks? You know. And TJ said, well, you know, I don't know whether he suggested it or I did, but we just decided let's combine forces and do one album for 10000 bucks. And because TJ was working at Cherokee, we got to record there on downtime. So we'd creep in in the middle of the night and record. And the, the bosses were fine with that. The Robs who owned the studio, they were great. They just said, yeah, you can come in and use the gear and go ahead, you know. And uh, yeah, so we eventually got the album done. It's quid pro quo. Yeah, and it was all analog tracked on vintage gear. It was beautiful. So, what a thrill. You ended up hooking up with GIT as well. How did that come about? Well, that was thanks to TJ. He, he made me known to uh, Keith Wyatt, who was the head of the Guitar Institute at that time. Okay. Lovely guy. Great player. Great guy. Yeah. And Keith got me up to do a uh, just a sort of a class in the big room in front of the students, and uh, and which sort of didn't start well because uh, Nelson weren't exactly the most respected band in the world back then, you know, and, uh, <laughs> and he, yeah, he mentioned that I played for Nelson and no one knew who I was at all. Yeah. So. And uh, so, yeah, there was much laughing and guffawing around the room. And that was cool. I totally took that on the, took it on the chin, on the chin as I do to this day. But uh, um, after I played, they, they didn't laugh so much. They liked it, you know, they, because uh, it was different, you know, it was a bit different to, no one really played much Legato stuff back then. Mm -hmm. And unbeknownst to me, 
Um, well, they did. The, the the shredder guys were doing legato, but all they did was just sort of not pick anything and do the same three note per string patterns yeah, as they picked. Yeah, okay. Yeah. They, they weren't being terribly creative. The most creative guy out there, I thought, was Reb Beach from Winger, who was doing some beautiful stuff. Okay. Um, yeah, he was he was doing some amazing stuff. I was blown out when I got to the states and saw them, and I went, you know, Rod Morgenstone, Mor- Morgenstein from. Uh, the Dregs, the Dregs was in that yeah, band. yeah. I was like, "Does every band like this?" You know, they were they were incredible. I thought, and uh, and um, and the hybrid picking thing too. They were really confused with that. So okay, cool. So, I mean, this, this is just what I did. I didn't take any notice of it. And then people are asking me questions about it, and I'm like, I don't know. You know, like I just play. It's like up to that point, I'd never done really done an interview. I had never done a guitar seminar. I had no idea how to talk to people or. Uh-huh anything i was a pretty shy sort of a guy anyway so the only reason i'm such a gas bag now is that i've done so many guitar clinics i know how to talk so (laughs) so, uh, yeah so um that's and then keith very kindly said we should get you up to do some open counselings and and then eventually i uh eventually someone went away on a, a gig and they asked me to sub their students for them so i sort of ended up being a bit of a teacher there okay cool very cool with um with open counselling, is that like a? Can you explain that? I've heard that term. Is that like an open class or a, like a group class or something? Yeah, you just you just sit in a room, a fairly small sort of a room, and it's usually got about half a dozen amps in it. Yep. And whoever wants to come in and play can, and you just sit there for however many hours they give you. Like it could be an hour or two or three or four, and mm-hmm. you know, like a, one of the main teachers there, like Scott Henderson. Scott will sit in that room for quite a long time, you know. That's where he teaches from. He doesn't. I don't think Scott does classes or anything like that. He's okay. there as an open open counselor. Yeah, right. And uh, and it was great fun. Yeah, I'd have people just walk in, you know, and then uh, you have no idea. It could be a, a, a total beginner, or it could be a world class player. I mean, Rafael Morea. I don't know if you know Rafael. He uh, he's a phenomenal guitarist. He he ended up playing with touring with Pink and. Oh, okay. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, He's Brazilian, uh, and uh, uh, not Shakira. Who's the other other one? Christina Aguilera. Okay, yep. And, uh, I ended up actually doing a tour of Australia with Paul Stanley, and and it was the entire band from the Rockstar shows that they did. Okay. And Raphael was in the band, so yeah, he was. I remember Raphael meeting him when he was a student, coming in with dreads from dreadlocks from uh, Brazil, and he was so damn good. I remember just looking at him going, dude, why are you even here? You know, <laughs> there's no one here to teach you anything. You're just here to get phone numbers and make connections. So, wow. so yeah, you, you had no idea. Richard Hallabeek, who's a friend of mine, uh, he's a phenomenal fusion player from uh, Holland. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, Richard just walked in and let's jam. And I'm like, oh my God, you know, I've got myself in deep water here. You know, so it was, uh, yeah, I, I didn't really think on my feet with some of those guys walking in. They were incredible. Wow. So you've gone from this position in Australia when you're playing with, you know, the biggest pop rock guy in the country, but now you're, you're, you're deep in this really intensive guitar universe. Did you enjoy the change of scenery in that sense? Yeah, I love the, I mean, I love the challenge of it because it just always is a challenge. And mm-hmm. um, I must admit, though, it's sort of, it sort of wore me down a bit because I'm not trained in jazz or or even fusion, really. I mean, you know, it's not like I'm not an experienced fusion player where I can just walk into a room and someone will throw a chart in front of me and I'll go, oh, look, it's just the same as uh, all the things you are, only in every different key. And, you know, I have no reference point for that stuff. My my background 
and what's sort of in my heart and soul is rock and pop. Mm-hmm. But the funny thing is, with the way I phrase when I play the instrument and some of the notes I choose, I sound, for all intents and purposes, like a fusion player. And uh, I guess my whole thing was I just want to take some of this rock, some of this fusion stuff and shove it in rock and maybe make something different. Yep. And I don't know if I've done that. I don't know if I actually achieved that, but that was my intention. My intention was to bring some of this fusion stuff to rock and pop and see what happened. And, uh, uh, but then of course, when you work with the hardcore guys, I mean, I've worked with some of the best fusion players in the world and, and then you really find out what your limitations are, you know, and you, you also find out where, where musicianship can go. I mean, I usually just sat back in awe at how good these guys are. And yeah, I mean, yeah. some some of those guys, um, you, you've worked with Derek Sheridian, for example. Tell me about that. Yeah, well, that came through through getting to know Virgil, Virgil Donati. Yeah. Um, uh, I only ever met Virgil in Australia when he was sharing a place with Phil Buckle from Southern Suns because Phil's an old friend of mine from way back Okay. Before John, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Phil's been a, a huge help to me all through my musical career, and and man, if I'd lived up the road from Phil, I'd be a much better guitar player now. I would have been bugging him every day about scales and chords for uh-huh. sure. Uh, <laughs> um, but uh, Virgil eventually went to the states and ended up uh, getting a room at MI to rehearse. Okay. And as a result of it, TJ and I got to know him, and uh, we asked him to play on some tracks for us. And so then we just start doing things together and, you know, and do the odd gig or whatever. And and uh, when Derek was going to do the Planet X album after he'd left Dream Theater, yeah. um, I don't know if he even really had a guitar player in mind. I, th- I thought they were going to have TJ do it. And then uh, it ended up that uh, Virgil said, I oh, get Brett to do it, you know, and for whatever reason. I have no idea for what reason. And, um, yeah, so I had to learn had to play all the tunes on a seven string. So I borrowed a seven string off a friend and cool. tried to wrap my head around that. Uh-huh. And cause they wanted it low and heavy, you know, yeah. heavy record and uh, heavy prog. And, um, and talk about challenging. That's the hardest stuff I've ever played, you know, like as far as chops goes. So, so yeah, really deadly. Cause like I said, I'm not a picker, you know, Tony McAlpine ate it up, uh, you know, cause he's a fantastic alternate picker. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, it was really hard for me. So, <clears throat> but um, but I loved it. I loved doing it. Great fun. You know, it was brilliant. Can I ask you, I've got some other of those fusion guys to ask, but you mentioned Phil Buckle. Can I ask a Phil Buckle question? Absolutely. Yeah. One of my favourite Farnham solo moments is in the song New Day, which I think is off, is that off Chain Reaction, I think? Yeah. Yeah, that's Phil that plays the jazz solo. Yeah. Ah, that was my question. Did Phil do the jazz solo and then you do your, your fusion-y solo afterwards? And I do the I do the... The, the rock shred solo yeah so. man i love that and I, I think i'd read somewhere but i couldn't remember so that was something i wanted to ask you awesome well that, i think that's a great example of what you say when you're trying to you know insert some of that kind of fusion rock influence into into the pop world
Well, to be honest, I mean, Phil was way ahead of the curve with all that stuff. I mean, you know, he was he was the guy that the minute John McLaughlin came on the scene, he, within a week he's all over it, you know. Wow. I mean, Phil's so damn good. Uh, guitar playing is almost like an afterthought for him, I think. He's a songwriter. Yeah, sure. Who just also happens to be one of the greatest guitar players that's ever lived, you mm-hmm. know. And like when Ingve happened, within a week he had it all down. Really? Like, wow. I, I can do Ingve, you know. He's... He, I asked him about it once, and he said, "Well, I don't know. I just look at it like I've got two hands and a brain. Like, <laughs> can I can I do what these guys do?" And he had the right hands too. Like he's got enormous hands. He can stretch from one end of the thing to the other. You uh-huh. know, it's like Phil's just built to play the guitar. So, yeah. But luckily, he's also built to write brilliant songs, and that's what he does. You know, he, he brings all that knowledge to. That's why there's so much beautiful harmony in the songs that he writes. Like, okay. Yeah. It's because of his. Like, look at Burn For You, like the voicing. Yeah, beautiful. I mean, and I, I still don't get it. It's not right. Like, I mean, I've sort of done a hash job of learning Phil's version, but uh, but um, I, I just know my version of it now. But, uh, but yeah, just those beautiful chords. I mean, that's, that's Phil from years of studying jazz and God knows what else, and he brings it to the pop world. Yeah, fantastic. Hey, I think it's really funny um, that you had to go to the east coast of the States to meet Frank Gambali, who's another Australian. Yeah, isn't that wild? Yeah, I go all the way to LA and meet Frank. Yeah. That's cool. Um, I've heard you say you're a big fan of his sweep technique. Not that you use it, but that that you just you loved it when when that came out. Well, here, that, that's Phil again. You know, uh, I went down to Soundworks down in Ringwood. Uh, they were they were the guys that Paul Gale at Soundworks was always the guy that repaired my gear. And, uh, okay. So I drove all the way to Ringwood, and Phil was working there for a time. And I remember they used to play. They used to play instructional videos in the store just to pass the time and all mm-hmm. that sort of stuff. And they had a Vinnie Moore instructional video on. And uh, I think it was that classic first one that Vinnie Moore did. Uh-huh. Yep. And in, in the middle of one of his amazing solos, he does a sweep arpeggio. And I went, my God, what was that? And Phil said, oh, <laughs> Phil said, oh that, that's a sweep arpeggio. And I said, geez, I've never seen anything like that before. And I hadn't. I had no idea you could even do such a thing. And... And Phil said, well, maybe you should take this home and have a look at it. And he gave me Frank's first video. Oh, so awesome. I, <laughs> I took that home and just went, you've got to be kidding me. What, you know, what planet's this guy from? And I found out he's from planet Canberra, you know. So, yeah, yeah. Um, but the, which was amazing when I met Frank, I asked him about that. I was like, how'd you end up here and in Chicks Man and the whole thing? And he, he said, well, I was just in Canberra and I thought, well, I either go to Sydney and study at the con or I could go to GIT. And he chose GIT and the rest is history. Wow. So. Uh, but, but the thing about Frank's technique, I, I didn't adopt the sweep picking, uh, but it was the way he observed the fingerboard, the way the, the sweep picking allowed him to play scale lines across strings, which just blew me away. And when I laid that stuff on the guitar, I found out I could do it with my fingers. And it was like, it was literally like someone tapped me on the head with a magic wand that said, you can now do this. And overnight, my whole style just changed because I had the chops. All I had to do was come up with the ideas. And awesome. I, think to, I think to my credit, I didn't actually learn anything off of Frank's video. I didn't, because not, not out of, that I didn't want to. I didn't want to copy Frank. You sure. know? And uh, so I, I started coming up with all these licks and 90% of them ended up on some trivial funk. Like, like I was only shedding them for a few months and I just walked into the studio and had all this stuff I could do. Yeah, cool. And thank God, because that's when all the two-hand tapping went out the window because you know, I met TJ and I thought, yeah, I'm going to look great standing there poking around with one finger and this guy standing next to me all over. 
his octodigital technique. So I thought, yeah, maybe maybe give the two hand tapping a rest. And so I didn't really do any more of that. I just sort of let it go. Uh huh. And uh, and got into this hybrid pick thing. That was sort of where I was going. Yeah. Right. Cool. So when when did you decide to pull up stumps? Yeah. Uh, from your your trip in the states. Well, it's not really a trip. It was a whole a whole lifetime, really. Yeah, I, I lived there. Um, way too late, but uh, I, it was eventually 2003 was when uh, I moved back. So okay, yep. So yeah, it was just there was you know we, we'd finished doing the last time tour with John. Yep. And so obviously I'd spent a year in Australia. Okay. And just you know I just realised I'm an Australian. All my family are here. Like. Like, you know, Australia's a beautiful country, mm-hmm. you know. Live in Australia. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, live in Australia and visit America. How's that sound, you know? And, and, yeah, it was the way to go. Yeah, sure. Cool. And you've been playing with John again ever since that tour? Yeah, yeah. Thank God he was kind enough to invite me back to play with him after leaving. So That's awesome. Have, would have had every right to tell me to bugger off and never show my face again. <laughs> but, so, yeah, that's definitely – it's an honour – to be on stage with John in any capacity, it always has been, and it's a real privilege to 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 be allowed back in the fold. You know what I mean? It's yeah, like it's awesome. more than more than enough fantastic guitar players that would have loved that gig, and yeah, it's a real privilege to, that he would ask me to come back and play with him again. That's so. great. The thing with with John Farnham's band, I've noticed over the years that the people who have worked with him, um, there's there's some people who've been there for a really long time, even. Even Stuart Fraser, who I think of as the new guy in John's band, he's been there 20 for years. A, yeah, yeah, a long, long time. Yeah, 20 years. And uh, and uh, Craig Newman, like... Uh, yeah, the bass player. Like I, I, Well, I met Stuart and Craig in 1994. That's, okay. Oh, no, hang on. I met uh, Stuart in 1994. Craig joined for the last time tour. Okay. So I would have met Craig in 2002. Okay, yep. But um, I, don't think, I don't think I'd met Craig prior to then. I never got around the Melbourne scene very much, so I wouldn't have, I wouldn't have met him. But, uh, but yeah, so I met Stuart in 1994. Yep. And, uh, and just, yeah, immediately became a fan. I mean, I was a fan of Stuart's anyway. I, I actually remember reading about Stuart because he was playing in a band called Feather. Okay. And I remember reading about him in Duke magazine when I was fourteen. Wow. And he was six, he was sixteen. Okay. And I they had a they had a, a single called Girl Trouble, and I remember the the video was on Countdown, and he played this great solo, and and I remember just thinking, oh my God, this guy's two years older than me and light years better than me. I thought I got to really get busy and get better. <laughs> It's just, I guess, luckily, not every sixteen-year-old sounded like Stuart Fraser back then. So, yeah, wow. So, uh, but yeah, yeah. So I just, yeah. So I was already, and then I was a huge Noiseworks fan too. So I yeah, mean, sure. Yeah, it was just such a thrill to get to know him and 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 to be to be playing with him all these years. What a what a learning experience. Wow, fantastic. Yep, greatest groove in the universe, I think. Yeah. So, cool. Yeah, I, I would pretty much say that uncategorically. So. Yeah. Oh, I love his playing. He's very melodic as well. Like you listen to those noise work solos, and they're just these beautiful little compositions in the middle of the tunes. Well, it's the parts. It's what he plays on the songs. I mean, when we do John's gigs, he pretty much plays it different every night, and uh, and yet it's gold. It's all gold. You know, you just want to record all of it, keep it. So, so yeah, that's a. You know, if the, if the music industry was still as robust as it was, say, twenty years ago, and there were sessions around, I mean. 
Stewart would be the man. He'd be the guy. You know, he'd be the Mike Landau of Australia. Uh-huh. I, I think so. So yeah, if you want that million dollar part, he's the man to call. I think. Very cool. Very cool. Well, um, and and a, and a phenomenal acoustic player too. I'll just add. Okay. So, yeah. Yeah. No one knows that. Well, not not many people know that. But yeah, hell of a boom chick player. Like. He met Tommy quite a few years ago, and oh, okay. and Tommy injected him with the with the bug, and uh, oh yeah, he's a monster acoustic player. Nice, nice. I would love to hear some of that from him. Yeah, yeah. He should he should do an album, I think. Cool. Hey, speaking of albums, you've you've done a couple on just strictly under your own name as well. So Big Sky came out, I guess, around that time you were moving back to Australia, and Dark Matter was out a few years ago. Are there any plans to to do any more instrumental albums yourself? Um. Oh, I don't know. I'd like to. I mean, I guess here's the thing. Like, like anyone can write songs, you know. Like, I could, I could write an album's worth of songs in two weeks, mm-hmm. and the only thing about them was that they, there would be nothing about them that was in any way, shape, or form special. They'd just be an album full of songs played by a guy who plays guitar, you know. And I'm not saying that everything I write's earth-shattering or special, but I just all I'm saying is that. I think that Big Sky had a lot of identity to it, mm-hmm. um, and and I certainly put a lot of effort into writing those songs. They were not written quickly or or haphazardly. And uh, Dark Matter was the same. And Dark Matter is different. And I wanted to go a little more, a little heavier and more progressive. Uh huh. Yeah. And just because I'd never done that before, and I guess part of it's just wondering what the hell am I going to do next, and does the world really need another guitar album? I don't know. I, I guess. Rather than just say, well, because see, we're in a different, we're in a different world now, Matt. It's like it's like a lot of times if you are going to do an album, unless you've got money saved up, which I do not, um, you've got to do the crowdfunding thing and expect people to pay up front. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and sure. I I sort of feel like then if you do that, you've got a real obligation to people that it's got to be something that they would remotely expect, you know. So if I turn around and do an all vocal blues album, they're going to say, "Well, in a minute, you know, I gave you twenty bucks for this thing. So I didn't want this. I want, I want instrumental fusion, you know." And sure. So yeah, it's a bit of a dilemma, really. But then, you know, by the same token, if I do something radically different, I'd feel guilty expecting people to pay for it anyway. So I really don't know. I, I'm hoping that the space will sort of show up in my life where I've got the time and the right mindset where I can get right. That's what happened with Dark Matter, you know. I just. Yeah had this really open schedule and uh i just got into the zone of writing and before i you know that's that's the only trouble writing's like anything you got to practice it yeah sure and, uh, so yeah, i'm not a very prolific songwriter at all so it takes me a while to get going get into it but yeah don't write me off i may do another one it just might take me another 10 years to get around no worries well i reckon i reckon people would be cool with some more brett garson music for sure Oh, well, we'll see. Maybe I'll do a song at a time, do that sort of thing. Sure. Brett, it's been awesome talking to you. Um, before we go, I should ask, what's your rig looking like um, these days? Um, yeah, it's funny that because uh, even even on the John gigs, like a lot of time you, you pretty much rock up small amps uh, and then in other cases it might be rented back lines. So. Okay, yeah. But at, at, for these most recent gigs, I've been using an amp uh, the the brand is uh, SWD. That's S as in Sam and oh, WD. And they're made uh, they're made by some friends of mine in Ballarat. Okay, and, cool. And uh, the the particular one I'm using is a clean amp, but it's beautiful tube amp, hundred watts, so loud as hell. 
and uh, I think it's 100 watts. It's bloody loud and a really nice warm platform for pedals to go into. So okay, uh, nice. just a 112 combo, open back. Yeah. And uh, I've been using the uh, 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 Fractal FX8, which is no, no modeling technology in that. It's just purely a pedal board. Just the pedal models. Yeah, yeah. Stomp box. Yeah, yeah, the cool. FX. So, and that thing's been brilliant and really bulletproof as well. Like, they, they make that stuff tough. I mean, it's getting knocked around a fair bit out there doing these open-air festivals and things. And, yeah. uh and solid as a rock. So yeah, I really, I really can't speak highly enough of the uh, fractal gear. Really good. Yeah, awesome. And I've, uh, I've actually gone back to playing uh, one of the uh, ESP guitars that I had made for me. Um, oh, okay, yep. It's a purple hollow body sort of semi-hollow thing. Yeah. That has little, uh, little, uh, like a small, small stars in it for f holes. Okay. Yeah, I've just been really digging playing that. I was actually playing my Telecaster, which I had refinished. And uh, used to be yellow with a cartoon on it, and I had it refinished in a nice burgundy sort of stain. And um, so I was playing that, but then I just got the bug for playing the ESP again, so I've been enjoying that. Very cool. Is that the one of the uh, two humbuckers? Sort of like an offset? Yeah, yeah two humbuckers. Kind of body yeah. shape. Yeah, nice. Nice, cool. And as we yep. speak, I've sort of got you in between festival gigs is i think you've, you've still got a bunch of those to go with um with the farnham band at the moment yeah yeah we've got a got a gig this friday with uh down in melbourne in the in the in the park and uh in the gardens mm -hmm. and then we go to perth to play at uh, rotnest island so yeah it's great we're really going all over the place playing a wide variety of places it's been fantastic excellent and the crowds are just going off man i can't get over it like it's John just goes out there and people lose their minds. Like, it's like <laughs> 1986 all over again. It's wow, that's so good. But here's the thing, too. Like, I mean, John's still giving you the same show he gave people in 1986. That voice has not deteriorated, you know. It's like there's a lot of major American acts that come here, and I just do have to say that they're charging top dollar and you are not getting the same show. A lot of these people can't sing anymore. Uh-huh. You know, there's only so many songs they can hold the microphone out for the crowd to sing and you think, well, hang on a minute, you know? Yeah, right. So uh, really, and all the acts, to be honest, like all, like James Brain, Daryl Braithwaite, Ross Wilson, they're, they're all the guys on the gigs, they're pouring their heart and souls out up there and playing it. You know, it's really, really impressive. Yeah, that's great. We had um, we had Brett Kingman on on this show a while, a little while ago too, and he's doing uh, the James, he's been playing with James for years. He's... Another great guitar player, so it's so good seeing Absolutely. so good seeing you guys out there and still uh, making some great music. Have you got much planned for the rest of the year once the festival season wraps up? Oh, there's a, there's a few other gigs floating around. Uh, I, I wouldn't mention them just because I, I'll believe it when I'm standing on stage. Yeah, that kind sure. of thing. Yeah. But um, yeah, it's just the the eternal challenge of the side man, just trying to keep working. Yeah. You know, I was kind of hoping that I all the the time spent in the States doing albums and particularly my own albums, I was hoping it might have built a career to at least a point where I could have a booking agent and go out and do my own gigs and at least sort of fill in the blanks that way. But, uh, but unfortunately it was not to be. So uh, that's all right. So you just uh, hopefully just that, I guess that's the thing too, because we're musicians. We love to play. That's all we want to do. We just want to play. And yeah, sure. I know that especially in this sort of fusion-y sort of world, like the more live playing you can do in that regard, the better. So, yeah. well, I mean, I, I had a, I was working with Phil Tertio and Jerry Pantazas and uh, 
Craig Newman in a band called Damage. Mm-hmm. And we were doing a lot of gigs here in Melbourne, and we're, we're threatening to fire that up again. Cause, yeah, uh, cool. You know, Phil's, Phil's the primary songwriter for that band, and he's just a genius. So Great. And those guys are so unreal. I've, I've been trying to talk them out of using me in their band for years, but they won't have it. So <laughs> I go, well, all right, you, you, do, you get what you pay for. That's it. You deserve me then. So. <laughs> That's awesome. Mate, definitely fire it up and come to Sydney while you're at it. That, would, right. be, that would be awesome. We should, yeah. We'll get to the basement or something. So. Yeah, cool. All right. Well, hey, Brett, thank you so much for your time today. It's been fantastic speaking with you and, and hearing about your journey. Your, your story is very inspiring and um and at the end of it, there's, um, like you said, just that passion to get out there and play. Oh, yeah. Yeah, just always willing to make more noise and annoy people. <laughs> <laughs> That's cool. Hey, the last, last thing I want to ask you or, or have you comment on, um, in that Spotlight um, spot in Guitar Player magazine, back when you were 21, you're quoted as saying this, uh, I suppose my ambition is to be heard and loved by guitar players everywhere. I play for fun, not to revolutionise the world of guitar playing. So if somebody says they like my playing, I consider it a very rare and generous compliment. Brett, is that still the case for you today? No, I want to dominate the world and everyone should bow before <laughs> me. Like, uh, nah, nah, that's, well, that's it. The only, the only typo in that is I, I said I, I wanted to be heard and liked by everyone. Ah, okay. <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't say loved. That sounds a bit bizarre. But, uh, yeah, right. It does sound a bit uh, megalomaniac, but uh, <laughs> but um, but no, no. What that's exactly what where I was coming from. I mean, I thought, yeah. well, there's nothing unique about me that I was hearing in that I did that I heard that I was hearing in the people that I was listening to, and I thought, well, you know, if I can just have a career playing this guitar and it doesn't offend too many people, like I would, that would be great, you know. And yeah, cause, and I I really meant that, like. I had this standard rave where people would walk up to me in pubs and they'd go, oh, I've never seen anyone play like you. Uh-huh. And I'd say, well, there's a good reason for that. I said, have you ever heard of Eddie Van Halen or Alan Holdsworth? And they go, no. And see, back then, you've got to understand, this was before Jump and the Beat It solo and everything, yeah. you know. And so I'm doing all this two-hand tapping stuff, and, and in our country area, no one's seen anyone do that stuff because no one even knew about Eddie Van Halen at that uh-huh. stage. I'm pretty sure I was the only Van Halen and Alan Oldsworth fan for miles. <laughs> and I said, no, nah, you got to listen to these guys. And I'd get a beer coaster and I'd write Alan Holdsworth and Eddie Van Halen on it and give that to them. Yeah. <laughs> and they sort of they sort of look me up and down with this weird look on their face and walk off and go, hmm, you know. And uh, I said the same thing to Phil Buckle. I was in Helmets Music in Melbourne mm-hmm. back in the early 80s and I used to go there while they were fixing my gear at Soundworks and play the guitar and... I'd have it so quiet you could barely hear it because I didn't want to offend anybody. And uh, and this head pokes around the corner and it's Phil. <laughs> he said, uh, he said you got, you're doing some pretty interesting stuff there, fella. You know, and, and I said, oh, no, you need to go and listen to Alan Hollsworth at any band. I was, I was looking for a beer coaster to write their names on. You know? And he was the first guy ever that said, no, I've got all their albums. I've heard them. you got something else going on. That's, that's cool. And, and and that was when it actually dawned on me. I thought, my God, maybe I do have something going on. So like maybe cool. I've got a sound or a thing, you know, and Phil was the first guy that ever said that to me. So I pretty much owe the fact that I even pursued anything original to Phil Buckle. Wow. You know, was that's cool. <laughs> Very yeah. cool. Well, your goal of not offending anyone, I think you've achieved that. And 
more so, I think you've uh, you've blessed a lot of listeners with uh, with your playing. So, Brett, thank you. Keep going, and um, we look forward to seeing what, what's next for your career. Thanks for joining us on the Guitar Speak podcast today. My pleasure. Thanks, Matt. All right, there you go. Brett Garson, part two. What an amazing career and what an amazing guitar player he is. Phil Buckle, thank you for encouraging Brett all those years ago. Funny thing about Phil Buckle, there were a couple of Phil Buckle songs at my wedding many, many moons ago, back in the 1990s. So, Phil, thanks as well. But that's another, that's another story. Hey, thank you for joining us on the Guitar Speak podcast. Remember, you can get to any of our previous episodes uh, by heading to iTunes or Stitcher, or if you go to guitarspeakpodcast.libson.com, you can find our episodes there free to download. Okay, our Patreon page is up. If you would like to support us financially, that's wonderful. Uh, patreon.com forward slash guitar speak podcast we're also on those facebooks we're on the instagrams and recently we've started up on the twitters so we'll see we'll see how that all goes all right i'm gonna go uh one last thing please send me some questions for peter northcote that could be fun send them off to guitar speak podcast at gmail.com All right, Brett's going to take us out with some more wonderful playing. This is a track called Big Sky, and it's from the instrumental album of the same name. My name is Matt Wakeling. Thanks for joining me on the Guitar Speak podcast. See you next time.